Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Today's episode is from the launch of the podcast. So the first year I did this, was, which was at the end of 2016, was as the coaching coordinator show. It was before uh, I took it over to USA Football. And one of my first guests uh, aired on that first day was Scott Peters, who at the time was running a company called Safe Football. He is now the assistant offensive line coach for the Cleveland Browns but continues to operate his company, and it's now called Tip of the Spear. Scott's done some incredible stuff in the offensive line area, and as he tells his story, you're going to see it all started with an injury and then just thinking about how to do things better. And I think Scott is a a great thinker, a great mind in the game. I'm excited about what he's doing at the NFL level in his first year and helping Bill Callahan. He was able to bring the Browns to first, as far as a rating in rushing and passing the Browns offensive line. So he's doing a great job there in the NFL. And this is part one of two. It's a longer podcast, 90 minutes long, where we get into how Scott started to think about this stuff and ways we can use better performance to create a safer game. So definitely one for every position to listen to. Here's Scott Peters, assistant offensive line coach for the Cleveland Browns. Our guest today on Coaching Coordinator is Scott Peters. Scott is the founder of Safe Football, and we'll talk about his company in a little bit. But Scott played football at Arizona State University. From there, he was drafted by the Philadelphia Eagles. And then he had some interesting developments in his career, which led him to developing Safe Football and working with martial arts. Scott, welcome to our show today. Thanks, Keith. Glad, uh, Glad I'm here. Well, fill in the blanks there, because I certainly left some, and you and I have yeah. talked <laughs> quite a few times about you know what your company does. But you know, give us some of your background and, and what happened to you in your career that led to this point. Sure. Yeah. You know, so I was an offensive lineman basically from day one. I I was a, I was a fat kid. You know, the kid that wore the, the shirt at the pool, all that. You know, so <laughs> I got thrown into uh, offensive line right away. It, it was, uh, but that wasn't until my freshman year of high school because uh, as a player. Prior to that, I was too was too big to play. So, I, you know, I, my uncle played in the NFL uh, for the Cowboys. He played at Cal Berkeley, and he kind of was a mentor growing up. And his advice to me was was play other sports, you know, and then football will be there if you if you you know choose to play in high school. So that's what I did. And you know, I was a baseball player. I played. I was a good player, and I wrestled, and I, I won this California state uh, cha- uh, state championship in junior high. 
And then I got to high school and I was kind of challenged chubby and, but I was big and I started to fill out. And, uh, you know, when I wrestled and I, and actually this is, this is embarrassing, but I'm going to admit to it. My mother made me do the swim team. So that was always, uh, you know, kind of humiliating. So I learned humility pretty quick uh, as a fat kid, but, uh, in a speedo, but, um, anyway, not to give a bad, bad visual, but, uh, no, I ended up when I got into football, it, it was, it was like nothing I've ever seen before because, you know, I, in baseball, for instance, you start off hitting the ball off the tee, you, uh, you advance, uh, you know, per, in a process. So you go from a tee ball to underhand to pitching machine to then eventually live pitching against another player. <clears throat> but in football and wrestling, very similar. You drill, you work on fundamentals before you jump into a match. And uh, in swimming, obviously, you can't just start swimming without having some understanding of, of how to swim. And, and you got to have some guidance on that. Well, football was, was completely different for me. And for everyone, really, if you think about it, you know, my, my instruction, the extent of my instruction, not, not to put down my, my high school coaches are great. They were great guys, great coaches, but the extent of my instruction was literally, uh, here's your pads. Here's your, here's your helmet. Uh, go hit that guy there. And so I said, well, how do I do it? And, you know, of course that was just, was disregarded. And this guy screamed out, told to go hit the guy. So I did. And that guy went flying and then I, advanced and <laughs> I started, everyone told me I was good, but, but, uh, what, what was good and see to me, good, good is a, uh, an, is, is a skill set. It's not an attribute. And I think in football, what I, what I was struggling with since, because I, the same issue went on in college, right? I got to college at Arizona state and you know, I had some great coaches there, but, but really, I mean, there's, it's very hard to train, to train and develop somebody to play the, you know, offensive line. It's a, it's an extremely, uh, technical position, although unfortunately 95% of the people out there are not playing with using, you know, the sound techniques, you know, it's just usually the same kind of stuff. We, I mentioned it, it's get out there and smash the guy. So, uh, with that, I, you know, I got to the NFL, I, I went through college, breezed through it and really didn't get a lot of coaching. And there's very little time for the college players to work with their position coaches, you know? So we, we spent that time in the off season in the weight room, getting bigger, faster, and stronger and sometimes fatter, you know, it's, it just depends on what they, what they want. So they value size and strength in the game. And, and so as I did that, I, I continued and I advanced and I got better. And, uh, but that was by virtue of adaptation and, um, you know, on the job training. So I got drafted to the NFL and I was all excited because I remember, I remember getting uh, really excited about getting to finally play for the best coaches and, and thinking, Hey, I'm going to learn really what I'm supposed to do. I want to become the best. And when I was drafted by the Eagles, it, you know, I was, I noticed that the system that, I, that it wasn't that way. And, and, and again, not to put down any coaches, but it was more of an issue of the, the system, the structure. It's, I realized quickly that the NFL is not a, not a developmental league. You, you don't go there to develop yourself. You go there to audition. Right. Um, the NFL is a business. It's of course, it's an entertainment business and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just the way it is. Um, with free agency, it's, it's plug and play. Um, the off season development model is you upgrade the team through free agency in the draft and, and you upgrade your existing players in the weight room. Um, so then you, you got these advanced complex offensive systems that are to, you know, take a ton of time to learn. You know, I played center and, uh, you have to you have to know. I mean, these are the most sophisticated schemes in the, in in the game, and you've got the, the brilliant guys masterminding these schemes. You got the best athletes executing them. So then you got the the biggest man on the field right over you as a center, and then you got to figure out where all eleven guys are coming uh, or who's coming, so to account for those guys. So needless to say, the game itself is really a cerebral game, and, and it takes a lot of time for for players to to start to understand what to do, and very little time for players to learn how to do it. So in other words. I, that was my first 
well, introduction to the NFL, but that was something that I, that persisted throughout my career. I did have a, a year with Jim McNally. I was very fortunate to play for Coach McNally and uh, by far the most technical coach I've ever played for. And uh, we've reunited our, our friendship uh, since I, I got done playing. We worked together and, and the guy's the guy's amazing. I mean, there's not a better coach out there for, on, any, on any level, in my opinion. And it all starts with his willingness to learn, his adaptation, and uh, he loves the game and technique. He's down to the minutia. Uh, this guy is the best, but... Um, you know, I've had that same. We, we, he and I have had these conversations too about the way that the game is. It's just very hard to develop people because of the time and the lack of, you know, there's, there's a real lack of patience for development. And 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 at a position like offensive line, where you know it's such a highly skilled position where technique is is paramount in the NFL's current culture with free agency, you plug a new guy in there. Uh, he doesn't make it. You plug the next guy in there. But how do you go? How do you get that guy to pass block? <laughs> you know, the NFL's best pass rushers. They have a they have an advantage inherently with uh, you know the, just running running forward at full speed. And we're right. we're basically doing a glorified backpedal trying to stop these guys. So that in conjunction with all the different schemes, it takes a lot of it takes a lot of skill and knowledge and experience to, to actually play at a high level. So you know, fast forward that and uh, you know toward the end of my career, I had some injuries and and uh, I I got into Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Jitsu, actually. Um, so during my fifth season, I was in training camp and I, you know, I had some ankle pain and I went to the, the, the trainer, the doctor, they, they wanted to do surgery. They wanted to, to take out some, some basic, uh, some, some, uh, bone spurs in there. So it was a minor procedure, but I woke up from surgery to the words, your career is over. And, uh, that was a tough thing to hear and, uh, wasn't expected. And, and so I was put through the, you know, the rehab pro- uh, process, they did a surgery called microfracture, which if anyone's listening, that's uh, interested in that surgery, do not do it. <laughs> it right. doesn't work. Uh, Sounds painful. It, it was a test, you know, trial. Yeah, it was painful, and it was a it was a you know research based uh, project, but but really I was the guinea pig there, and and uh, you know I don't recommend it, but but what happens is with that surgery they drill into bones, so I had to be uh, non weight bearing for about twelve weeks, and that's a quite a bit of time to be on crutches. So I just find out my career's over. I got I got to finish this out and and do the hand bike at the, at the you know facility, and I was just getting bored and kind of depressed. So. I was always uh, a fan of UFC and MMA and stuff. And so I started, I found a little gym in, in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, to do jujitsu, which is a non-weight bearing activity. You're at, most of the time you're on the ground and it's, uh, I, I got in with these guys uh, about twice my age, half my size. They're bankers, little guys. And just, I mean, they just kicked my ass all up and down the place. I and mean, it was great. Uh, honestly, <laughs> it was great in a way that I'm like, it was enlightening. So you is know, this, a, this is strong. after you were cleared or you're, you're still actually not cleared you're doing the hand bike at what point did you start yeah I'm, I'm not yeah no i did it like almost immediately after the surgery as soon as i could about three weeks after oh, wow and uh I, you know i let the trainers know i was doing it i said i'm, I'm you know it's going to be non-weight bearing real real passive but it, it helps me get moving again and uh you know the guys were cool they took it easy on my ankle i didn't have to stand or anything so it was on the ground who were you and, with uh, at this time was, what team were you with I, I was with the Carolina Panthers at that okay. time, but uh, the the point, the moral of the story was I I I couldn't believe how I was one of, I was literally one of the strongest players in the NFL. I benched like 600 pounds, you know. I did uh, you do like 40 pull-ups at 315 pounds, but I couldn't, and I I never got completely dominated like I did by these bankers. I mean, <laughs> they put me in arm bars, they, they did things to me I couldn't stop, and. And I thought, wow, this is really, really cool. I mean, if you could check your ego and then get past the first uh, wave of that, we start to learn what this is. It's, it's pretty amazing stuff. And I found a real passion for it. So I moved back to Phoenix and, uh, 
I tried to find a gym that continued training, and, and I really had a tar- hard time finding a good gym that was a place where you could have a professional, clean environment that wasn't a fight gym, but you could train with guys that really knew what they were doing. So, um, you know, I, I kind of got the idea of, of uh, starting up a business, and uh, so I started up a, a mixed martial arts training facility in Scottsdale and uh, as a business, and I got a, ended up getting a call. We had opened. I got a call from my agent, and he goes, hey, you want to play football? And I go, this is about a year later. So I literally hadn't run or lifted weights in an entire year. I got down to my playing weight was about 305 or 350, you know, between there and 315. And, and I was down to about 275. And, and he asked me if and I hadn't lifted, hadn't run, just nothing but groundwork on the on jujitsu mats. And uh, he asked me if I wanted to play. And I said, uh, well, <laughs> can I play? I don't know. You know, if I could pass a physical. So he said, the Cardinals want to sign you. And I said, okay, great. So I went down and got a physical. They took the physical and they go, well, we see you look great. So they signed me, even though it was light pretty light. Uh, Russ Grimm was my line coach. And he goes, what, where the hell's the rest of you, man? I, <laughs> that was so light. And I said, Oh, I'm 300 pounds. He goes, yeah, right. So I was, I was not, I was very light. And I went up to training camp and it was amazing. Cause we went up to Flagstaff where it's, uh, you know, it's high altitude up there. And, uh, but the, the conditioning that I would had, had it on board with uh, jujitsu was incredible. It, it taught me how to breathe. It taught me uh, a lot of things that really transferred very well to football. <clears throat> in fact, I, I, you know, I gained about, about 10 more pounds. I got up to about um, just under 290 uh, within a week. You know, that didn't take long, but, um, but I was playing my best football I've ever played. And, and I, I credit jujitsu and it was amazing because I didn't do anything on the ground, no pounding, but, but my ankle held up great because of all the proprioception from being on the mats, uh, the development of the different strengths uh, that, were, you know, that, that by use, you kind of use your hands as feet. So you learn this amazing dexterity with the feet and, uh, and it recovered and, and rehabbed my ankle like better than I, I could have ever imagined. So I ended up playing two more years. I, I started my MMA gym. I retired after the Cardinals, uh, 2008 Super Bowl run, kept running the gym and I wanted to be an expert in jujitsu. So, or at least not in an expert in MMA, because here's a football guy that doesn't know much about, you know, MMA. So I wanted to really, you know, become, you know, establish myself in that field too. So I started training with some of the best. I brought guys in <clears throat> from Brazil. I brought, I brought some of the best guys in from Muay Thai, boxing, jiu-jitsu, MMA, all across the board, judo, uh, wrestling. And, and I started to train with those guys to really become a, uh, an expert and also start training guys myself. But then I started competing too in, in jiu-jitsu. And, and uh, when I, I was able to do pretty well at that. I won two world championships in submission wrestling and uh, grappling, which is jiu-jitsu without a gi on. Uh, which is a uniform. And uh, at that point, you know, I kind of had started training with Cain Velasquez and Brock Lesnar and the UFC, some major contenders around the world had bring, had brought me in because there's not a lot of big guys out there that have skills in jujitsu. It's actually kind of a small guy's sport, but if a big guy learns it, he could be extremely dominant. So that was kind of my role. And I, <clears throat> I embraced that and, uh, you know, ran my gym and, and I, I, I kind of stayed away for, from football for about two years. Well, then I got asked to do uh, do some football combine training for a couple guys from a guy named Brett Fisher. He runs a big sports training facility out here. And he's one of the trainers for the Cardinals. And I said, I'd do it. And I got back into the football thing and I, I thought I missed this, you know? And so I started to kind of apply some concepts that I learned in, in martial arts to football objectives. And I found that there's different things you can do that are going to optimize your performance and just better mechanics and uh, not just the better mechanics, but the better, uh, the, the training approach. I mean, in football, we train to get bigger, faster, stronger, like I mentioned earlier. And in, in fighting, it's literally, uh, you want to train to get better. That's what keeps you safe in the cage. So my, the light bulb kind of went on and I thought this is good. And uh, I want to, you know, how can I help the game of football? Um, at that time, I, I uh, you know, it was right around the time when Junior Seau's death happened and 
Dave Dorson and, and all this stuff about CTE and the NFL uh, concussion lawsuit was coming out. I mean, that left me in a kind of a in a mindset that I was like, well, geez, this is not this isn't good. I mean, we we literally used our head all the time to hit. And uh, as I got better and better throughout my NFL career, I stopped using my head as much because it just became a better methodology. But then when I learned the jujitsu and I learned all the mechanics of these fighters, how strong somebody can be that's small, but by using mechanics, using a skeletal structure as opposed to pressing and doing things that we're so conditioned to doing with football that that the performance actually, uh, you know, the mechanics of this is going to yield far greater results. And uh, so I kind of tested that theory. I got hired by the University of Washington in 2012 uh, to go up there and train their players. And we trained them in 2012 and 2013 and the offensive line, defensive line. The results that came back were pretty much like I couldn't believe it. Honestly, I I knew they were going to improve, but I didn't know to that degree. They had the top performing offense in school history. And they, uh, they were number two in sacks on defense because I've developed some pass rush moves that are specific that, that came from different martial arts that are really, really effective. And uh, but, the, but the most important part of that was that the trainer called me and said we had not a single concussion in two years. We had not a single stinger in two years. This is the first time in school history. In fact, they even did a, a study with an accelerometer, uh, accelerometer data, and they compared that to other schools like Michigan. Uh, I think Notre Dame was one of them, Alabama. And Washington had like not even reached the threshold of concern on any of the hits. So, the, wow. so in other words, they were taking their head out of contact, playing with their hands, and they were winning. Who was the offensive line coach at the time there? The line coach was Dan Cazetto, and that was my college coach. So Cazetto was the offensive line coach, and uh, Sarkeesian was there. Okay. He was the head coach, and, and we worked with uh, – but we worked, with, like I said, with the offensive line, defense line. We also had the tight ends. A few linebackers came in, and it was just it was just drills. I showed the kids. I showed leverage concepts here. Look, look at this. Look at this. I really hadn't developed a program around it yet, but I, I kind of improvised and showed them, and, and they bought in, and, and we got that stuff implemented in the weight room. And the most important thing to say is that these guys didn't just do it. They did it all year round. They did. They managed to in, incorporate many of the drills that I was teaching into their strength and conditioning program, which was kind of that missing link because we get everybody's getting out there bigger, faster, stronger. But who's getting better? Well, this was a testament to that that theory. And not to mention, it just it yielded much safer results. And, and so it's kind of a, I've never seen a win-win before with trainers, strength conditioning, and coaches and players. I always you always see somebody angry. <laughs> the right. trainers usually don't like what the players are doing. The coaches don't like the trainers around. You know. Um, so it was a fully integrated approach and, and every, something everyone agreed on. So that was what kind of spawned safe football because none of the, the movements, none of the techniques that I was, I was teaching had anything ever incorporated the helmet. These are, these are ways to generate more force on the field, apply and resisting uh, more force and, and, you know, yielding more control of the body um, and being able to then manipulate and alter an opponent. So you're operating with perfect anatomical integrity. So you're coming with the, the strongest approach you can, and then you're starting to break down after contact you break down that opponent and whatever uh you know for whatever capacity you're or, or objective you're trying to employ so if a defender we taught defenders how to uh, soften shoulders to maintain gap control we taught offensive linemen after contact how to torque and how to break guys down to define the, the running lanes for for the backs and stuff so it really worked great and and then that kind of took off from there i went off and, and uh, i formed safe football and uh, we've we've worked with over 450 high schools uh, in, the, in the country to date um, since 2012, and uh, we've had the same results we've had at Washington uh, with the groups. And this is the disclaimer. This, this, <laughs> there's a heavy disclaimer here that you have to you have to develop the skill set. You you can't just watch the film. You can't just you know, visit a clinic or go to a camp. You have to actually make this a habit. But uh, but for those who have done that, we've we've heard the same things. We've got a better team, and we've got uh, far fewer injuries. And, and in some cases, we haven't. You know, teams have gone from 30 concussions in one season to zero. And that's happened here 
uh, in Phoenix and across the country in certain uh, locations where coaches really took initiative to make this a, a priority. And, and, and if, again, it's I think the number one thing to remember is that it is a performance program and the byproduct of that is safety. Right. And, and I think there's two standards, obviously, that coaches want to meet. And obviously, safety is one. The other is the effectiveness. But you did mention that the defensive line led the, the uh, conference in sacks, I think you said. They came in second in the NCAA over the two years. They had like over 100 sacks, I believe it was a number. So, How did the offense perform? The offense performed great. So when you think about head contact and off, you know, in a pre-tackle helmet contact, and that's that's pretty much, uh, you think of the run game. You know, that's where a lot of head contact occurs. I mean, you know, you shouldn't be hitting your head too much as an offensive lineman on pass protection. Hopefully you're not doing that. But on the run game, that's where, where most of the, you know, the head injuries occur up front. And these guys rushed the ball for over 3,000 yards with Bishop Sankey in one of those seasons. I think it was 2013. And, uh, you know, I was, so that's, that's, a, that's an incredible feat within itself to say that, hey, look, these guys did it. And they didn't use, they used their hands. So they came and they were an impressive offensive front. But they, they did their, their dominance with, with the hands, not the head. And that was, that was something I thought was, was great. Because then it's very hard to go out and tell a coach, hey, coach, I got a safe uh, football program. And it's not better, but it's safer. Well, that's not going to fly. Right. You know, we have to come from a, in order for this to sustain, for the game to continue and to, and to sustain and and, uh, and actually recover. Because a lot of time, and I'm noticing uh, participation dropping around the country. Uh, we, you know, this is this last year, 2016. It was the first year I've noticed that. I think it's starting to take hold, and I think people are questioning whether they should let their kids play. And I don't blame them. I mean, you know, when you look at the news out there, the information's all bad. It's uh, why would anybody in their right mind want their kid to play? That that's that's a common thought process and so my point is it's like no you can play it's just like anything you can like like swimming you don't just let your kid abandon your kid at the pool you're gonna have to teach them the methodology and that's the key here we have to go back to that we have to focus on that and we have to put that over that has to take precedence and priority over us over scheme especially at the youth and high school levels because these kids don't know what they're doing yet and uh the nfl guys i mean those guys are a product of those systems so what you see there is you see the bigger faster stronger guys and they're just doing what they've known how to do and And once those habits, you know, well, once those routines, those techniques have become habitual, very hard to undo that. So what we want to do is key in on the youth and and the high school, bring back some confidence. And that that only comes by virtue of improvement and also by uh, safer outcomes. So that's what we've been able to do. So we do an education program for parents. We just try to re-gear people because our our culture is kind of screwed up. And if you ask me, it's uh, everybody's a winner mentality. Well, no, they're not all winners. You have to work at that. And the game requires it. To be good at this game, you have to put in the time. You have to do things others aren't willing to do. So it's it's not for everybody, and that's the carrot there. It's not for everybody, but it could be. You know, it's simple. You you can a small guy can can do far more than be far more productive than he thinks if he uses the methods. A big guy, if he can use those methods and not cut corners because he's getting away with his size, he can not only play without his helmet, but he can just he can dominate anybody if he's a skilled technician. And and that's 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 the mission we have is to prove that. Well, Scott, this past offseason, I really focused a lot on, you know, what are we doing on the field? And a lot of this comes back to my philosophy as a coach, which I think I first heard it from Joe Paterno, is that, you know, first players need to to learn uh, what they're supposed to do. Then they need to know how to do it. And then they can play with, you know, aggressiveness, with confidence. And I think going back to some of the things you said, when you first started playing football, here's your pads, you know, here's your helmet, you, you know, go, go get them. And so we're, you know, at that stage, we're not hitting really any of those things. You're expected to have the confidence right away. Go get them, go hit somebody. And you're going to get that confidence by just, you know, repeatedly running some of those contact drills. And that's what we've seen kind of at the youth football level. Then you talked about your experience in the NFL. 
where it's really more, okay, we're going to focus a ton on how to do it. I'm sorry, on what to do. You know, make your calls, obviously complicated line calls. You're seeing all kinds of exotic blitzes, defensive line movements, et cetera. We're going to focus so much on that that we don't really develop that how. And you're back to, okay, kid, here's your, here's your pads, here's your helmet, go get them. All right, make your calls, go get them. So moving forward, you know, I, I spent actually a whole day talking to guys on Twitter about the dangers of the Oklahoma draw. I even wrote an article about it and thinking about how that drill applies to the the things that you actually see on the field. In fact, on Facebook today, I saw another drill, which I thought was completely stupid, where guys from either side are running over agility bags and meeting each other in the middle as, as fast as they can go to hit each other. And one of the common responses from guys was, well, you know, it's something to get the juices flowing. It's something to, you know, to teach them aggressiveness. It's something to get them tougher. And I think eventually, you know, in our society, in our day and age, especially with some of the things now we're discovering about CTE, concussions, et cetera, that, you know, if your answer is, well, uh, you know, I needed to get the juices flowing or, you know, I got to develop toughness in players that, you know, an attorney is going to take you to task someday on those types of things. So I know you really look at that kind of stuff with safe football. Could you maybe shed some more light on that and I guess fill in the blanks that I've left there? Yeah, absolutely. You made a great point. And, And I was just on Twitter too the other day and someone pointed out, uh, there was a, guy, a group, it was some, I don't even remember the name of the group, but I don't want to put them, sell them out too bad. But there was a group that was promoting, hey, submit a picture of your helmet uh, and we're going to, whoever has the most battle scars wins. And that was, so it's promoting like these scars on the helmet. So it's basically promoting who's hitting their, with their face the most or their head. And I'll, I'll equate that to like bragging about, you know, being poor. Who's more poor? I mean, I, I don't understand it. Uh, why would you want to pay more at the cost and the expense of your most vital organ, your brain, when you don't have to? But, and, and so the key is that, and I'm, what I'm suggesting is, I'm not suggesting that the helmet can't be, have a, a role in it. The helmet protects you. But to me, it's more like an airbag uh, of a car. You're not going to be like, well, I got a great airbag, so I'm going to drive like an idiot. I want to be a skilled driver. I want to be, I want to, I want to execute my job and I want to do it at the least cost to me. And that, and that's really the way we need to think. And, and, and in fact, that's, that's a more productive way to play. And that's a more effective way to play because you're going to, you're performing at a higher level. Uh, your brain is not, you know, an operating system. It's not to be, you're not using your computer hard drive to, to blow down a door. Uh, why would you do the same with your head? I mean, your head is, you, need, you got so much to think about. It's a very, uh, the game itself requires a lot of intelligence. It does to play. So let's keep that in fact, and we can use other tools and, and play at a better level and, and be more effective and, and prolong our careers and actually extend the game. So our slogan is save the brain, save the game. And that's really the key because if we don't do that, you can look at helmets, you can look at all these other things like restrictions and penalties, but you got to start with avoiding helmet contact. And that's, that's really the key, but that can be done through a methodology. And so the drills that you're bringing up, um, I've kind of done with safe football just to kind of give coaches, we have seven key traits that we find in high-risk drills. What's a high-risk drill? That's a drill that, that it's, it's usually a one-on-one competitive drill or one-on-one V3 or more <clears throat> a competitive drill with contact and practice that doesn't really yield the result that we're looking for. It doesn't have a high game impact. So we have a threat. We have basically a grid or a matrix that we call it a, a risk drill matrix. Uh, and basically on the vertical column, it's a game impact. And that's like, you know, a 10 out of 10 would be like, you're using a drill that would be specific to something that happens and correlates to the game itself. And then uh, zero would be something that doesn't um, on, on the, horizontal uh, grid, it's risk. So zero is no zero risk and 10 is high risk. So Oklahoma drill is the one that most, most of us know. Uh, everybody knows universally. Uh, that's a 10 risk and that's a zero or one or two game impact because really it's zero because I've never seen a, a situation where the defense has no gap responsibility. There's no accountability. And then the back has no entry. There's no entry for the running back. So 
it's usually just read the guy and then and go. So it's it, the job of the player on offense, the guy lining up, whether it's the offensive line versus defensive line or a linebacker versus a, a, a tight end or somebody or, or even a receivers on the edge or the corner, there is no objective. There's no objective where the ball's defined and there's no gap responsibility. It's literally, let's just smash the guy and read and maybe make a play. So that's not a high risk. That's a high risk drill with little game impact. So we want to cut those kind of drills out. Uh, you see other ones like the get up and go drill, which where, or some people call it that. It's where you basically laying on your back head to head or even at a depth and you get up on the coach's whistle and you smash, smash each other. So the, those are drills that don't work. And, and the seven defining traits that we've, we've uh, kind of put together for this. The first one is, does the drill promote uh, development of a position specific skill? You know, so if you're blocking somebody, uh, you know, and you have a specific application, it goes, it goes hand in hand with the second, the second uh, rule or trait. And that is, does the drill coincide with the offensive or defensive scheme? So it should, both of those things should be, be present in, in drills that coaches are picking. The third is, does the contact drill last more than eight seconds in duration? That's eight seconds is the average football play. So you see drills like the gauntlet drill and others that are, or the bull in the ring where, you know, you get one player out there and he's, he's in there for 30 or 40 seconds. Meanwhile, guys are just coming at him. I mean, that doesn't reflect football in any capacity. Uh, you brought up, uh, you know, getting juice, getting up. Well, the reality is, is if you don't, you should have that. That's inherent with playing this game. You have to be tough. You have to be physical and you know, you have to be willing to, 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 to play at a high level and get up for it. Um, those are just prerequisites. So if you need, if you need a drill to, it's like taking hammers to your fingers, you don't need to do that. You know, <laughs> you can, uh, why are you doing this to prove, what are you proving? This is just the kind of a, a meathead mentality and it's not intelligent and it's not advancing the game. So uh, the, the fourth one, is does the drill involve a collision from a distance of five yards or more? So when you're doing a one-on-one drill with contact, you know, you can, everything can be done in short, short capacity, but you get guys starting at 15 yards depth. Again, usually these drills don't involve any application for, for schemes. So there's, you know, it's just usually like a meat grinder. Let's see who can hit the guy harder and dominate the guy physically, but it doesn't really tell the whole story. It doesn't make you better. The next one, the fifth one is, does the drill involve equipment that obstructs the player's footing or posture? You know, shoots. I'm a. I don't know how you feel about shoots, but I'm a. I'm. I couldn't be further. Uh, I couldn't be in further disagreement from using the shoots. And we used to use those in uh, college. And what you find is, if you look at anybody using shoots, you see bad posture. Guys can't. They can't keep their head up. Their elbows come out. Their low back gets rounded. They're doing everything they can do to squeeze their big bodies through those shoots. So when you when you line up a guy across from you in the shoots and you have a contact drill, you're you're promoting bad posture and you're promoting again. It goes back to these other key traits. It's just not a good drill. It's, it's yeah. not a, it's not safe and it's not effective. No, um, we we used the we used those shoots in high school and our our <laughs> our coach called the drill the guillotine and like the, <laughs> like honestly the objective for. The, the guy not in the shoot was to drive him back and put that guy's neck right into the back of the shoot. I mean, Oh boy, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. So. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's really on par with, remember when, uh, I'm sure you've seen this too. I, I know I, I kind of got a taste of this as a young player when they used to pull water from us because we weren't tough enough. Right. So it's like you're, you're deprived or we know no water breaks, no water breaks. Well, if you kind of break it down, we talk, people talk about performance enhancing drugs. Well, you know what the number one performance enhancing substance is? It's water. water. And, and so if you're a coach and you're thinking that you're going to get more out of your team by depriving water, it's the same, it's the same mindset as saying that you should go do a drill like the guillotine drill or something. You know, it's, it's not effective. It doesn't yield a result. If you're just trying to be tougher, then well, a lot of people are tough, but they're not very smart. So we want to, you know, the best players are, are tough and smart. And that's what we're trying to say here. And uh, so the next one is, uh, oh, I, I did mention the, you know, the obstruction. So not just the shoots, but the boards. I saw a kid uh, dislocate his knee 
um, on a on a board uh, with it was a one on one run blocking drill. And again, you're you're lining them up directly head to head. It's usually a lead step. Guys fire off. They hit head first, and then as the, as the play progresses, as the, as the snap progresses, you know you could lose footing. You get your foot caught on the board. You twist an a, twist an knee, and you blow out something. So that, those are other other traits of high risk drills. The last uh, the last two here's the, here's number six. Does the drill involve involve live contact with one player versus three or more opponents? And that's a drill like the gauntlet drill where. One guy runs downfield, he hits the first guy, then he, he hits a series of guys. Well, that's just not realistic in football. You know, you, you, you might have a situation where you're engaged with two guys, but it's part of a, it's part of a strategic effort. And, then, and these drills don't, don't provide that. And the final one is, is seven is does, does the live contact drill keep the defense honest? If you're going in, uh, you know, some of the biggest collisions I've ever experienced in, in football were in practice in the NFL when it's an inside run drill uh, on, in, in training camp because the defense knows what it is. You know, the linebackers are not held accountable to the passing game. Not, there's nothing more than just downhill and, and smash the guy. So those kind of impacts aren't necessary because they don't correlate to the game. And if you think if anybody that thinks that that they are necessary, um, you're contributing to the to the downfall of football. And, and we have to we have to reevaluate that. And and I'm gonna, and I'm not going to talk about I'm not trying to, you know, chastise people as much as we are trying to say, hey, look, this is not, you know, you got to ask yourself objectively, is this better? And if I'm a coach, I'm thinking, how do I get my kids to do what we're trying to do? We have an offense, we have a defense. And how do I develop these kids in short order? Because it's hard anymore, uh, limited time. Well, you got to take these kind of drills out. Now, if not from a safety standpoint, from an ineffective, you know, it's not a, it's not an efficient use of time either. So there's a number of reasons not to do these. And, and that's, that's something that everybody needs to look at. But again, this goes back to really the, the key here is that the culture needs to change. We have right. to think differently. And that's really what this is all about. How do we approach this? And I think the best guys in the game, the best coaches and the best players are thinking this way. We just need the rest of the, the group to, to step up. And that's, that's possible. But like I've always said, too, with concussions, now that we've, kind of, we've proven that, that you can prevent these concussions, we've proven you can eliminate head contact or at least you know, reduce it dramatically with, with skill. So that's the goal is, is to do that. And, and how do we get back to that? Um, well, that's through skill development. And that's, uh, concussions are preventable. They are. And, uh, and you don't have to not play football to prevent them. You can't make football entirely safe. You can't make golfing entirely safe. I mean, things happen. But if you can you know, mitigate those risks through skill and development in the right places, you got, you got a really good chance. And, uh, you know, as far as it goes with, as far as the mentality and the per- that's pervasive in the game, we just need people to step up. There needs to be, everyone's looking to Roger Goodell and the NFL to do something. Well, again, they go back, it goes back to business. It's a business, it's an entertainment venue and people watch the game. They want to watch big hits and, and the players that do it, do it with, you know, they're playing their best. I mean, these guys, you can't just punish a guy for, for hitting the same, the same way he's always done it uh, and expect him to change. He, he's at the highest level of play. If he alters his his play on any front, he he may lose he might lose his job, and that's that's something that we we all know. But we have to look at the youth and the high schools and, and say, and not glamorize uh, winning with at the cost and the expense of your brain. But like I said, with those those sure. star battle scars, that's just ridiculous, you know. Well, so we have to we have to look at it more holistically. Yeah, definitely. In fact, I think you and I started talking about a year ago, as everybody was gearing up for the concussion movie to come out, but. You know, I, I contend that it's really the, the game's going to be saved by coaches, period. I agree. It's not Rydell or someone else is going to come out with a better helmet. Mm-hmm. It's worn airbags in, in cars before. At one point, we had lap belts. They become a lot safer, but it, it doesn't mean, hey, let's test it out. 
it's it's uh, taking the head out of the game, which you talk about all the time. You know, remove the head as a tool for contact. And a lot of this is just it's a matter of education. Uh, guys have grown up playing the game a certain way. They've been coached a certain way. That's all they know. It doesn't mean that right. they're they're doing anything maliciously. And I, you know, I don't want to say that, but at the same time, when I see right. some of these things being glorified, some of these drills, you know, put up on social media, on Facebook, and, you know, like you said, the scars on the helmet, et cetera, you know, we have, a, we have an issue right there. And that's where our culture needs to be changed through education, through things that you're doing, through, you know, hopefully something like this that is getting out there to coaches that they can pass down to their youth coaches, to fathers who, you know, who want their kids to play football, but know that they can't play it, the, you know, the way that it's being played right now. What is the appropriate time for, for a kid to, to start playing tackle football? This is the number one question I get or this or, hey, would you let your son play? And uh, it's, a, it's a subjective question and a subjective answer. I think uh, it's hard to say because some kids it really, in my view, it's a couple things have to be at play at once. You, you have to, if I had a son and, and he wanted to play football, here, here's my process. If I was to go about it like this, first of all, can he, can his body hold with, uh, you know, withstand, can he control his body effectively control his body? Like has, does he have full body control with his equipment? And I see kids wearing helmets that they can, and I think John Madden made a point about it. He goes, well, we just taught a kid, how, we just potty trained a kid and now we've put a helmet on him. These helmets are heavy. You know, you get a helmet on a kid, it's, it's like a bobblehead. He goes around there, he's got a developing brain, but his neck is not capable of supporting that helmet. So, so do I think he should play? Absolutely not. That's, that's one thing. So I don't know the, the, the exact answer to that. It's, it's dependent upon, it's probably to a player by player. But, um, but that's, one, that's one attribute I, I think you got to look at. Another one is, is, does the kid want to play? Because sometimes I see kids that go out there. I was an example of a kid. I did play one year of youth football. I, I mentioned I didn't, but I, I played one year when I was nine. And it was a horrible experience because I was a fat kid. I got thrown out there with kids that were 12 and 13. And I, wasn't, I had no testosterone in my bloodstream. <laughs> I was just like, you know, I'm wearing this heavy equipment and coaches are screaming at me. You know, it's like, this isn't fun. And I think a lot of times kids get written, they write off the game. And, and maybe they don't ever come back to it because of that. And I think dads, it's, it's who's coaching you? That's, that's my next question. Who is coaching these kids? And, and it should be taken very seriously. And I, and I get it. You don't have to have played in the NFL to coach somebody. You don't have to have played any, at any level to have coached somebody. You have to be somebody that comes with a mindset that I want to learn the best and most effective and appropriate tools for coaching. That information exists. To finish off that last segment, that point about, you know, it's really not a concussion issue. It's an information issue. Right. Um, information exists. We, it, it's out there. We, we provide it. Others are starting to provide it. Uh, you know, it, it's just about, but, but it yields a better outcome. So, so you're not asking kids to do something to compromise their performance. You're asking them to increase it, holding them accountable, which is what you need to do. You can't, you know, coaches, but coaches, it starts with them. You said it. The coaches are going to either save the game or they're going to bury it. And, and it's not coaches at the NFL level. It's, it's not college coaches. It's really the youth football coaches. It's the high school coaches. Those guys, they're, they're the true leadership in this thing. They, they got to know that. They're the guys that, that, are, that are most important in this, in this function. And for them, it's, it's imperative that they, they stop doing what they did and they got to, they got to, they got to evolve. Uh, you know, any species that fails to, you know, the only reason we things evolve is because of necessity. That's the only cause for evolution. We're there at this point with football. We either evolve or we die. And, and the game turns into a, soci, a, a game of socioeconomics where only the inner city kids are playing as a tool to get out of the inner city. Well, you know, the suburban kids are not going to play anymore. Let's face it. Um, if we don't do something, we, we need to protect all every kid. And that's the key. And it, it comes from adults. And I think adults, when I watch some of these drills on YouTube, it's upsetting. 
oh, because sure. you just go, wait, you know, I mean, and clearly some of these guys either started with a half a deck or they maybe they lost a lot of brain cells in the process when they were playing. So they want to inflict that on the kids or they don't know any better. But, but that's why, you know, these leagues have to take some responsibility as well. Uh, organizations of youth football are privately owned for the most part. Well, their business is in jeopardy because we're talking about, uh, you know, multiple leagues. It's dividing the market share. You know, Pop Warner's down like 2,000% or something like right. that, something crazy. And, and it's not just because of concussions. It's because there's other emerging leagues. Well, the league, in my opinion, the, the, the leagues have to start looking at, well, what, how do you differentiate? They got a real problem here, and that's that's participation is on the decline, and that's not just football. That's that's sports in general in the in the country, but football, you know, is is leading it because of these injuries and the fear around it. So, how do you combat fear? It's information. You got to provide that, and you got to like take a good look at who's coaching these kids. That's that's the arm. That's the that's the key channel there for these kids. It's not it's it's not what they watch on television. It's who's their leadership, who's teaching them, and how are they conducting it? And I think that's what we have to look for and um, in, in order to save the game. I had a couple of follow-up questions on your standard. Thank you for sharing those. I think those are very useful. You mentioned uh, in the first first part of it, scheme. Like, is it specific to a scheme? So we'll get a little bit, I think, more into safe football, but, you know, let's focus on that for a second. I mean, let's, sure. let's say it's a team who's I don't know. Uh, let's say, let's say it's an option team and, and thinking, oh, you know, well, maybe this stuff is only effective with, you know, pro style type of schemes or zone or, or whatever it might be. What's the applicability of these techniques to something where guys are used to coaching for them? What's most effective? Let's get the guy in a flat back stance, fire off the ball as hard as he can, because we're going to be buying a, you know, a second and a half anyway. Well, How does it apply that way? Well, it's kind of funny. It's a universal uh, contact. Is is we? I boiled this thing down because we had to come up with a curriculum that worked for everybody. We're we're not just working with linemen here. We we work with all all positions. I know we'll talk a little bit more about that later. I'm sure. But but what we discovered is when it comes down to it, contact is is uh, there are some principles, key principles of contact, and that's applicable uh, and universal for whether you're blocking, you're shedding a block, or engaging a blocker. It's your your. Uh, or, or you're tackling, whatever the, the form of contact is, and then regardless of the player, there's some key principles there. And the first one, we have an acronym. It's called BLAST. And you can see it on our website at safefootball.org, and it's, it's a great video. It kind of defines leverage, and, and it's applicable. Again, it's universal. So BLAST, the B stands for form a good base, a triangular base. You want your toes out. So a lot of coaches I've seen saying, telling kids have your, your toes pointed straight ahead. Well, that doesn't allow us to generate our, our a full hip extension, the position we call arc strength. That's it's where our hips come to extension. If you've ever seen a, a suplex by a wrestler, mm -hmm. he could take a guy his size or bigger and throw him clear over his head, but he has to do that by bringing his hips to, to extension. By having your toes out with, the, with your full foot on the ground, but you got that weight distributed on the insteps and a good posture, you're now capable of lifting from the ground. The only source of, uh, real source of, uh, you're really the only uh, you know, area that we can draw from our energy from. We can't, we don't have a bench press behind us. We have the ground to work with. So we need to keep our feet grounded and our feet behind and our hands in front. That's a, that's a huge posture. Coach McNally talks about it. Um, those are postures to protect and to generate more force. So with that said, how do you deal with like a, a group that's want to run on the wing tee or they want to fire off the ball? Well, well, you know, firing off with lead steps is not an effective tool. It's just not if you're blocking. Um, and the reason for that is because, number one, if you, if you kind of look at your feet, you look at your feet and you say, I'm going to take a step forward. Well, now uh, you might have a big, what we're trying to promote there is a big strike initially. 
you get a big strike. So you fire off, boom, I can take a, I can get more impacts with my head or <laughs> the point of contact. And usually this does equate to head to head to head contact. If I take a lead step and that's right. been done for years and, and that's clearly a problem. So what we say is that we don't, lead steps don't work. We need to, whatever the fit is, whatever the footwork is, we have to keep our feet, both feet behind us as at the point of contact, the feet behind us. And what, what actually moves people is not, is not the delivery of a step. It's not a strike. It's an actual lift. You're def- Reflecting force, because if you think about it like this, now this can apply to any any situation. Applies to any scheme. If it's a one-on-one base blocking situation, and I'm trying to, to to get to control a defender, and whether I want to get movement or I want to stretch the holes, whatever it is, I want to be in a posture that that can sustain that. And by stepping at a guy, you found you've taken all that. You've taken your. You've really disabled your hips now. So I always kind of use this analogy. If you took a medicine ball, you know, take a 15-pound medicine ball, and and you, if you got a, a, an even base. And you, you hold that ball between your legs. You kind of hold it like a punch bowl, drop it between your legs and try to throw it uh, forward for distance from like an underhanded throw. Well, you're, you can, your hips are really driving that process. Now, if you do the same thing, if you put one foot in front of the other and you try to do that, well, you're not going to get nearly the same amount of, of movement on the ball. The ball's because you're using, you know, arguably half of your hips. You're not using all your hips. So, you know, every coach in America will tell kids to use their hips, but they're very seldom teaching the proper methods to do it. And then they're not drilling that and, and incorporating that. So when it comes to coming up, it's really a universal practice, whether you're blocking, shedding, or uh, tackling, is to have both feet behind you. You want the movement and the force to be generated from the uncoiling of the hips. That's where the movement uh, occurs. And then the steps follow that once movement has happened. If that make, Does that make sense? It's yeah. hard to kind of paint that visual, but complete sense you look at a guy for example you know we're, we're talking about moving stuff right we're moving people but if you look at a guy with the atlas stones or or you mentioned you know some other things i've heard you talk about like the caber toss mm-hmm. they're not doing that yeah. from a staggered position right they're they're, they're they're allowing them their their greatest resource their greatest source of power it's like nuclear power if you could tap into that it's incredible you know people that that know how to do this i mean they're like the guys that everybody goes he's got that crazy field strength whatever they used to say well, that just means he's functional. He knows how to move somebody. That's that's a key to leverage. So, uh, just to touch on those those leverage points, you, you know, have a good base. You got it all starts with that the base posture, uh, triangular base, toes out, hands in front, in the guard position. We call it low back arch, head up, vertical spine with knees bent, elbows uh, in. You shouldn't see the elbows from behind the body. Um, and then the the second one is play long. We want to use our arms play long. That that allows us to generate force if we do it the proper manner in the proper manner with the right uh, mechanics to use our hands and then to also create separation between us and an opponent uh, that, that, that yields better, you know, better control and vision of the field beyond them. Cause you're not just playing against one out there, as you know, you got to play, there's 11 on 11. And so uh, we got to be able to see the field, but if you're mired in with your head, you don't see it and, and you're ineffective, you're, you're off balance and a guy's going to pull you, he's going to shed you. Or if you're a defender, uh, you're, you're just not operating with the same strength. You can't see the backfield. So uh, play long is number two. A uh, uh, A uh, in the blast acronym is is ascend the hips. So your your hips should come on an ascending path, and that's all kind of it. Kind of ties back into the having a good base. Um, and then the next one is is stay square. Um, one thing you'll hear Coach McNally talk about if if, you, if there's only one coaching point that the guy ever uses, it's stay square all the time. You want to stay square, whether that's pass pro, whether that's run blocking. But that's true for tackling in the open field. If you're turned. You're, you're compromised. So by staying square, you want to have that base. You want to keep those feet behind you and you want to attack that target uh, vertically, but you want to keep a square base all the time. That, that allows you to get to that arc strength position I mentioned. And the final one is triangulate. Uh, triangulate is, is basically attacking off center line. 
So when you see guys that come, you know, run and approach a, a defender or a ball carrier or whatever your position is, if you're, you know, whatever contact you're approaching to engage, you know, you see guys that the head-to-head contact occurs when you run right down the middle. That's like, that's, that's insanity. Why would you run? At, that's exactly where the guy's got the most force. Right. So it takes more force to stop that guy to, to reroute him to, to stop his momentum and, and then to carry out an objective than it would if you attack off center line. So, so therefore, like if you're using the shoulder in a, in a high-speed collision, you, know, you want to offset that guy, and you do it based on position-specific or scheme-specific applications. So if I'm a tackler, I'm, I'm an open-field tackler, and, and uh, I know my help's coming from my right, then I'm going to offset the guy. Uh, I'm going to offset to the left so I can help you know, with, and, and make, a con- make contact with my shoulder. That, that's easy. If I come down the middle with, the head, with my head le- leading, I'm subject to a lot of problems and, and also to missing a tackle altogether. And maybe he skates around me and, I, and uh, to, to the side where I don't have help. So, so th- these things are very universal. And that's, that's kind of why we put the curriculum into a package and said, hey, like, you know, whether you're doing, no matter what you're doing, these are the key concepts here. And then we get into the exact fits and then we get into position-specific objectives too. But, but principles of contact are, are something that everybody should understand. On our next episode, we'll get into more of this, and Scott starts talking about something he shared at the Cool Clinic and some of the questions that he fielded there. Again, some very interesting stuff and how Scott has been able to focus on performance with the results of being better, safer techniques. So join us tomorrow, and if you're interested in Scott's stuff, go to tipofthespearfootball.com to check out what he's doing, the techniques he's put together, just some incredible stuff there for both sides of the ball in all positions. Again, that's tipofthespearfootball.com.